Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, August the 23rd, 2023, uh, on a rather hot late summer day in San Francisco, unseasonably hot, surprise, surprise. Um, and as the summer slowly winds down, it seems uh, as if COVID might be back. It never, of course, went away. According to CNN, it might be time to break out the masks again. Uh, I'm sure that's not going to cheer many of us up. Uh, Kaiser Permanente, one of, uh, one of the most credible, I think, uh, healthcare networks is reinstating the mask mandate and Hollywood studios are bringing it back. I um, wonder what all this is going to mean for children who believe that we were beyond or perhaps hadn't given it a lot of thought, lived through COVID and then now might have COVID back again. One of the people who's given COVID and children a great deal of thought is Anya Kamenet. She was on the show uh, last year talking about her new book, The Stolen Year, how COVID changed children's lives and where we go now. Um, and Anya is joining us again from uh, Brooklyn, where she lives. Uh, Anya, what's your sense of two things? Firstly, where we are with COVID. And secondly, how these almost inevitable relapses, I guess, this reappearance of COVID, it's obviously never going to go away completely, how mm -hmm. this might affect children as we move forward. So, you know, I think um, we're, we're in sort of what people forecast to be the endemic phase of the virus in the sense that most people who don't have challenges to their health, um, rightly or wrongly, it's, it's faded into the background of our lives. We might take a test, we might wear a mask on a plane, but it's not something that really haunts our everyday existence. Um, the impact that I see on kids these days is really more in the lingering effects. So... Um, for example, you know, uh, kids still aren't fully socialized into um, being in group environments, being um, with their friends. You know, I'm still seeing um, and hearing reports of impacts on kids in terms of their ease with other people, their their level of social development. Obviously, we know that kids are not back to where they uh, would have been academically um, after so many years of disrupted education. Um, and I think that there's there's something more subtle to that's hard to put a finger on, which has to do with kind of the felt sense of all rightness, you know, that at least in post-war America, at least for the last few decades, people were used to kind of giving their kids a sense of, of, of being things being okay, things not easily being disrupted. And that's something that's really just gone. You've started uh, your own Substack, the golden hour, and uh, you describe it as, um, uh, a time, a reader-supported uh, publication, uh, uh, what to say to your kids when they can't go outside because of the apocalypses. And, 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 and your new, uh, new Substack focuses on this notion of the, the polycrisis. Perhaps you might say something about this polycrisis and how COVID fits in, whether it's just a piece of it or the defining quality. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So, you know, I think for most of us who pay a good amount of attention to the news, um, the term polycrisis was actually used at Davos 
um, a couple of years ago. Of all ago. places, given of all that places. Both the cause and the consequence of the poly crisis. Well, exactly, exactly. And some people say, well, it's a, it's a way of making a god of the mess that they've made uh, made of the world um, and sort of giving uh, away some of their agency in it. But I do think it's a useful term to kind of understand that we're in a permanent age of non-normalcy, right? So the interlocking impacts of things like pandemics, climate change, um, the global unrest, uh, the the war in Ukraine, um, you know, obviously things that have been with us uh, forever, like poverty and um, crime and colonialism and racism, all of these things kind of intersecting and feeding off of each other. So the, the phrase used by the U.S. military is that climate change is a, is a threat multiplier. Um, and you can kind of see that in things like, you know, um, there is this uh, there is a hurricane off the coast of Hawaii, which causes hurricane-forced winds that blow across a brush fire, which turn into a catastrophic wildfire. Then in the aftermath of that wildfire, you have problems. Um, you know, it is very, very hot, uh, unseasonably hot. And so people are dealing with the lack of power and therefore lack of air conditioning. And so all of these things kind of cascading at once. And then the the social relations that come in a polycrisis, um, there is, there's different pushes and pulls, but really we're talking about a, a loss of social trust, a loss of trust in institutions, in governments, which leads to then a lack of participation in democratic systems, even when they exist, um, which obviously just kind of devolves and feeds onto itself. So, you know, I think most people in the U.S. can perceive um, a bit of a gulf between what is actually, um, you know, what people are experiencing in their everyday lives is the most important issues and what politicians are talking about um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And that gulf is measured also by our, our apathy and our unwillingness um, or inability to participate in the democratic process. I'm rereading Rick Perlstein's Nixon Land, and it, and it reminds me of, of how crazy things were in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, America yeah. on the brink of civil war, economic chaos, true war overseas, Vietnam, yeah. undermining institutions and so on and so forth. Yeah. Is the difference, and uh, Andy and you know this as well as I do, is the difference today in terms of our quote-unquote polycrisis that we're less resilient, that we have somehow assumed that there wouldn't be crises, that we were living at the end of history and suddenly history's reappeared and we can't deal with it? Or is there something different about these series of crises, environmental, political, cultural, institutional in the 2020s as say in the 1960s or 70s? Um, I love that question. I love Rick Perlstein's work. I've thought about that juncture in US history and global history a, a great deal. Um, and, you know, I think there's probably a lot of parallels to be drawn. I think everyone, you know, the apocalyptic feeling of, say, New York City in the early 70s, the son of Sam, the blackouts, um, probably in terms of mood is quite similar. I think um, the only differences that I would draw today would be, uh, number one, of course, the nuclear existential threat has in no way gone away, right? So we're still living in a nuclear world. Um, and the deterioration of the kind of Cold War stasis, um, which you talked about the end of history, does raise the, the, the fear factor on that in particular, especially when we had someone like Donald Trump um, in charge of the of the briefcase, right? Um, the second, of course, is the 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 countdown on the climate crisis. So, you know, in 1969, the climate crisis was known to a few scientists. Um, today, we are outpacing all projections, and 
it is truly, you know, Bill McKibben says climate change is the only timed test that humanity has ever been uh, faced with. Any other problem, you can solve it today or you can solve it in 10 years. But with the climate crisis, we really are out of time. And I think that's the feeling that it's hard to argue with. And really the reason that for me, you know, I changed my focus um, to from looking, you know, simply at COVID or at children's well-being in general toward looking at the climate crisis as it impacts young people and indeed all of humanity. You mentioned McKibben uh, and this notion of time running out. Um, Anya, um, we're living in these this, this sense of end times and a lot of it is articulated or perhaps discussed by journalists. You did work for NPR, now you've gone out on your own. Uh, on Substack with the Golden Hour, how, how does um, how does journalism in particular fall into this? Again, uh, Perlstein reminds us at the end of the sixties and seventies that Nixon's public enemy number one were journalists. So things don't seem to have changed that much. <laughs> journalists have always been and will always be very controversial. Some love pe- some love us, some don't. Mm-hmm. Some see us as the problem. Some see us as the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that fit in? And, and, and how does your shift from a, a more conventional kind of journalism at a network like NPR to Substack, how does that reflect this? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I, I pay a lot of attention to Jay Rosen um, and his criticisms of the media. And he talks about this in, in political media, but I see it across the board. The difference between covering the odds and covering the stakes, right? So when you talk about covering the odds, you say something like, well, these these marine biologists are very worried about, you know, the the, the ocean heat wave um, and, uh, you know, they're personally affected by it and they may or may not succeed in getting policies passed. But, you know, obviously our the health of our oceans is not a concern of marine biologists. It's a concern of all life on Earth. And so when you talk about the stakes, talk about what's really important here and what we really should be placing the most emphasis on. I don't see that happening in mainstream media. I don't see mainstream media, you know, that certainly the volume has been turned up and I think there's been improvements. Um, They kind of have no choice when there is another disaster every day. But in terms of day in, day out, really covering the issue of climate change as it impacts our, how we work, where we live, how we live, where we put our money, um, and the, the rules that politicians and, you know, for example, the Supreme Court are playing by, Um, it does start to feel a little bit like rearranging deck chairs right on the Titanic. Um, And so thinking about how the media, you know, how deferential the mainstream media can be to the powers that are in place at the moment in any particular moment in time um, and the reflexive kind of giving of space to people in elected office, for example, whether or not what they're saying has any relationship to reality. um, That's what kind of, it, it started great on me after many, many years. And I'm not totally out of the mainstream media world. I do publish um, articles in, in many different publications. Um, but I really, as a freelancer and in my own newsletter, just try to lay my cards on the table and, and situate myself in terms of, you know, my subjectivity, my priors, and um, just be as honest as I can with the audience about what I think is at stake here. Do you think that a platform like Substack allows a writer, journalist, broadcaster to be less deferential to the powers that be? 
Well, there's no platform is perfect. Um, and as long as you're participating in the commercial internet, you know, you're going to be um, kind of whipsawed by various uh, types of problems. I know Substack's been criticized for the uh, amount of platforming it's done for uh, people that really have views that are quite opposite to mine. Um, Do you think that's a fair criticism? Um, I think that anybody who runs a platform in in 2023 has to have a great answer to what are you doing about Nazis? What are you doing about, um, you know, people who really have views that are abhorrent? And I think that some of the answers Substack has given have been um, uh, unsatisfactory so far. Um, I'm pretty new to the platform. I like the features that it has and the people it connects me with. So, you know, it, it's something that I'm, I'm happy to work with them for this till this point. But there may be a point where I say I can't do it anymore. It's been a strange summer, Anya. We've done a series of shows on Barbie. You wrote something about Barbie or the illusion of choice. Uh, mm -hmm. I know you're a parent. Um, you haven't taken... I'm not sure if you've taken either of your daughters to the movie yet. You've even seen the movie. But what do you make of our nostalgia? It seems to come out in all sorts of weird ways, also with Oppenheimer, this nostalgia for another America. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because um, that pairing is so fascinating. There's a really good piece in the Washington Post, which I write about in my piece, um, about how you know the nuclear bomb and then the um, is in one kind of original sin of America or the Anthropocene, in fact, in general. And then this plastic-based culture and economy that that Barbie like epitomizes very well, um, that is another kind of Anthropocene bomb, right? So the signature in the Earth's crust that we're leaving as a human race is actually defined by both of those things. It's defined by microplastics, um, that are, you know, that you can see in layers of soil, and it's defined by the radioactivity um, of the early nuclear tests, which you can see in the soil. And so these are things that ge geologists are actually using to date um, when we entered into the Anthropocene. So um, it is nostalgia. It's a little bit of a reckoning as well. So thinking about, you know, Barbie is a very fascinating combination of embrace and critique of the roles that women have been asked to play in society, how they've been asked to really uphold the consumer culture and economy, right? So women are responsible for 70% of consumer purchases um, through their, you know, disproportionate share of household uh, tasks. And so thinking about, for me, you know, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a mother, what I'm passing along to my children um, in terms of the physical culture, but also the, um, the, uh, the actual culture, and what we're, what messages we're sending, you know, can we live a life that's free of plastic? Can we live a life that's free of this kind of tide of consumerism that seems to wash over us? Um, these are very, very salient questions right now. We are talking with Anya Kamenet. She's the author of The Stolen Year, a wonderful book on COVID and children, and now uh, the author of The uh, Gold Now, a new Substack. I just subscribed. I strongly suggest everyone subscribe. She's an important voice. Uh, Anya, we're going to take a short break now. I just want to mention my own sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. All my guests are going to get uh, subscriptions, complimentary subscriptions for a year, a lot of interesting new writing in it. Um, and we're going to run a short ad and uh, for Liberties, and then we'll be back with Anya. I want to talk more about social media and technology in the second half of the show. So stay with us, everyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. 
Liberty's it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberty's is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more Liberties, libertiesjournal.com, where you can subscribe. Uh, Anya, you, uh, you've written quite a lot about screen time and technology. You had an interesting piece on, uh, in the New York Times uh, a couple of years ago on being a screen time expert. And then Corona happened, uh, COVID happened. How, in terms of our poly crisis, how do you place technology, social media, and the internet? Um, I think it's a little bit too soon to tell. I mean, that's that's a cop out answer, but you know, the ways that we communicate with each other obviously shape society, um, you know, in many different ways. And um, we are in uh, a new post Gutenberg era, right, of multimedia communications and network communications. And so far, um, the impact on our society, on our democracies, on our um, economies has not been unreservedly good. Um, but I guess as someone who is in the realm of communications, who is, cares passionately about you know, all forms of art and communication and who writes books and who loves to communicate and talk to people, I can't say that it's all going to be for the bad. You know, the, the fact that people can be in touch around the world and, and see what's happening to each other and form relationships across boundaries now with simultaneous translation, I, you know, I still have that thread of optimism in me, even though I see so much of the detriment. We've done a number of shows on teen health, social media and anxiety, one with Hannah Murphy of the Financial mm -hmm. Times. Researchers have suggested that anxiety fell off the cliff for teenagers, particularly teenage girls in about 2012, which mm -hmm. coincidentally or not was the time when social media rose dramatically, Instagram and then TikTok, Facebook's always been around, of course. Is there a connection in your view? Um, I've been a critic of the associational research. Um, first of all, there is a just a, such a longstanding legacy of moral panics around technologies and youth. Um, and a lot of them intersect with our concerns about young women, typically about young women's morality. Um, so the idea that, you know, the telegraph, the radio, the uh, comic books, movies, video games, all of them were thought to be detrimental to young people. And really what we're expressing is our anxiety as a culture about young people and young people's interests. Um, and we're denying their agency. So what the research actually shows is that it is very mixed and inconclusive. And there's a great number of young people that manage to use social media and make it part of their lives, don't have it take over their lives. There definitely are fractions of young people that use it to find um, things that aren't wholesome for them and things that aren't helpful for, them, helpful for them and can draw them into, you know, kind of dark alleyways of the soul. But I would, I would argue that that's always been the case. You know, there have always been a group of young people that sadly aren't getting the support that they need at home. Um, and in previous generations, you would find much higher rates. I mean, I'm talking about just it, in my teenage years or 20 years ago, you had very high rates of drug abuse, very high rates of teen pregnancy, of car crashes, of violent fights. All of those things are lower than they used to be, even as anxiety has risen. So what we've seen is perhaps a displacement 
overall in the type of risk-taking behavior that young people are taking part in, where more of it is online, which is less physically damaging, um, maybe it has uh, reverberating effects onto their mental health. And so we have to think about what would a society look like that gave all young people the ability to thrive and to take risks in a way that actually you know, goes to their development, because this is something that they're being genetically driven to do. In terms of that research, are you suggesting that I think you use the word inconclusive. Is yeah. is it inconclusive because it doesn't really show the rise of anxiety, or is the rise of anxiety clear? It's just not clear why people have be, why people suddenly became so much more anxious after twenty twelve. It's inconclusive because there have been many, many attempts to establish a causal relationship between dose and response, the amount of social media one one imbibes and their mental health. And in all of that research, um, which is correlational, right? So we're not randomly assigning young people to use social media or not to use social media, except in very short range um, experiments. And in those, it tends to be inconclusive. So overall, the relationship between the amount of social media one person consumes and their mental state um, is not showing a strong correlation. And that's what I mean by inconclusive. That's why that's why researchers who look at the research categorize it as inconclusive. Do you think the rise of the so-called influencer economy, whatever that means, also has compounded a degree of anxiety? I'm not saying all teenagers want to be influencers, but some do. And there seem to be some pressure and the consequences both of failure and indeed in some ways even more of success of the influencer economy can be quite traumatic on teens and young people. I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, how influenced are they actually by the economic model of um, this kind of celebrity, which indeed I find is very grueling. So for people that do make it their living to post on social media, including many young people, it's very, very difficult. For the young people that follow them and like them, how, how affected are they or how much do they even realize the impact on them. I think it probably, this is a question that probably goes back decades, right? So how did the fans of the Beatles, you know, think about what, you know, what it meant to actually be a Beatle and to be constantly chased by paparazzi and, and screaming people everywhere they read? Probably didn't think about it very much. What about uh, fixes for all this, Anya? I know you've, you've started your Golden Hour as a, uh, a kind of advice center and a way for you to articulate our way out of the poly crisis. Yeah. How do we begin to do this? There is no single fix, of course. There's no single fix. And I don't presume to be the arbiter of all solutions. Um, what I'm really focusing on is what I feel like I can explain, which is how to deal with our emotions that arise in relationship to what we see going on around us. And Skillfully dealing with those emotions, I believe, is the first step. And certainly as parents or caregivers of young people or teachers of young people, we need to be able to address these emotions as they arise. You know, the mental health crisis among teenagers and young adults is very real. And um, we don't serve them by avoiding topics that we find are going to be difficult or um, upsetting to address. Um, what young people uniformly tell me is they already know about the climate crisis. They know about an elementary school. Um, just for example, they know about racism, they know about war and, and the things they hear on the news, and they're looking for adults to be a trusted advisor to help them make sense of the world around them and to help them manage the emotions that come up. And in order to do that, we need to be in, in charge and master our own emotions as well. What about for parents who aren't sure 
even if there is a polycrisis, or at least mm -hmm. if there is one, it's no different from any other series of crises in history. How should parents present their own ambivalence or confusion? You know, I think um, that's a great question. I think that uh, most people in the United States in this summer had to deal with extreme weather. You don't have to have a big story to tell about why it's happening to um, be able to talk about it, the extreme weather and how it makes us feel that we can't do our everyday activities. So that's one place that you can start just with very clearly with the weather forecast. Um, in terms of ambivalence and confusing information, um, there's a lot that we can do and should do to help the work of schools in helping young people um, understand misinformation, understand disinformation, how to discriminate among sources of information. Um, when you hear a claim, you know, what is the best way to check it out and what is an authoritative source of information? And so, you know, one of the, some of the most satisfying conversations I have with my children is when they ask a question that I don't really know the answer to, you know, how does a microwave work or what is really inside a black hole? And then together we go on a journey to find out the answer. How old are your kids? They're six and 11. Um, you, you mentioned McKibben, of course, who's very influential. I know you linked to him on, on your, on your, on your Substack. Um, how dramatic do you think this summer of 2023 will be seen by climate historians? Oh, I think it's going to be eclipsed immediately. Um, the El, El Nino has started. It'll be going on for the next 18 months. And, um, it's going to bring new records. Um, we're, we're in, we're in chart, we're in for a stretch of climate firsts and climate records that is that are just due to be eclipsed by future ones. So I, I doubt this summer is even going to make an impression within 10 years. I mean, of course, your golden hour idea is cued in the sense of telling kids they can't go outside because of the apocalypse, but it's also very serious and dark. We had Lucy Jones, an English science writer, on the show a couple of years ago, suggesting that the experience of going outside as a child and uh, a certain soulfulness, a development of the soul, are, are intimately bound up with one another. What happens to our kids if they can't go outside? What happens to their souls? This is a heartbreaking question. Um, it's something that every every parent across the United States, almost a hundred million of us has had to deal with, whether it's the extreme heat or the wildfire smoke. Um, we're losing, if we lose that connection to nature, we lose an essential part of our humanity. Um, and it's very good points to be made about, you know, the screen time that we're imposing on young people as a displacement for the time that they should be spending outside. And now with these hazards that they can't actually spend outside. So, you know, it makes it all the more urgent to, try to cultivate, conserve the wild nature that's left, figure out safe ways to enjoy it, bring living things inside if you can't go outside and just figure out ways to continue our connection to life, which is something that is just a, you know, a vital part of humanity. It doesn't sound very, I mean, and I'm not suggesting you should have something convincing, but it isn't, is it? It's, it's a rather depressing future. Um, I think that we are in some ways, I mean, it's been said that, um, we're in a little bit of a hospice state. Um, it's certainly with the ecosystem that we enjoyed. You mean as a species, we're in the hospice? Well, the ecosystem that we've enjoyed and lived with um, in for really the development of humanity um, is exceeding its ability to continue along this way. So we are losing, you know, we're, we're on track to lose coral reefs. We're on track to lose 
many different types of ecosystems, permafrost is melting. So I think we're in a time of really profound changes and we can't sugarcoat it. You know, we've got to figure out how to live with joy and meaning and purpose and full awareness of what is actually going on, not what we wish or hope was going on. You think another feature of what you call this hospice culture, perhaps, is our sudden embrace of other species, interplanetary travel, and yeah. of course, AI. Are they all part of the same rather depressing package? I'm not sure that I find it totally depressing. I find it pretty fascinating, right? So I would compare, I compare AI to a, a little bit of a second Darwin moment in the sense that we're being displaced from the center of the great chain of being, you know, this time in the chain of intelligences, and we're being forced to confront the fact that there may be other intelligences, other types of intelligence. What does it really mean for people? What is human? What's uniquely human and what isn't? Um, I think those are more, I, I choose to be more fascinated by those questions than I am depressed by them.